Good morning, and let me add my welcome to everyone else's. <laughs> welcome to City Church. My name's Andy. I'm one of the elders here. Um, I'm the elder that leads the team. It's great to see you. Good to be part of this great church. Today we start a new sermon series, a new series, and we're going to be looking at the life of David, one of the kind of giants of the Old Testament. Many of us will know lots of stories that go with, with David, but first it's worth saying, how do we get meaning from the Old Testament? We're, we, uh, it's kind of the, the big chunk of the Bible that no one ever reads. Uh, but actually, it's very, very important. And it's written in a very different way to the New Testament. The New Testament, particularly the letters of Paul and Peter and others, are tightly argued. And line by line, they're rich with things for us to understand. And the Old Testament is not written that way. So the Old Testament, uh, the communication often comes through the stories. And the stories take longer to communicate something. So you tend to have to read a bit more. Uh, of the story to extract the meaning, and the story often carries the meaning. So you're not trying to say this story is a metaphor for this, the story itself is the meaning, and that's how God has communicated through the Old Testament, so you do have to read a bit more. But what you find is, because it takes so long for the, often it's a nation who's learning a lesson, it takes so long for a nation to learn a lesson, sometimes it's generations, and it's the same bit of communication that God's doing to the nation. It's the same thing that he's teaching them, that we ought to take notice that it took them sometimes generations to learn one thing, and recognize the challenge that is to us to sometimes learn the same kind of stuff. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel today, and the story of David can be found in 1 and 2 Samuel and early, <coughs> excuse me, in early kings, uh, which are in the Old Testament. Now, these things were written a thousand years before Jesus, so over 3,000 years ago. But I think we'll see this morning that the communication, the lessons that we learn are bang up to date for 21st century Bristol. That's the amazing thing. Uh, one of the amazing things about God's Word is that although it's, it's very ancient, someone said uh, once, it's called the Old Testament and the New Testament, but that can be a bit misleading. It should really be called the Old Testament and the most recent Testament because New Testament tends to... Do you get that? No, obviously not. Never mind. In other words, it's not that new. You know, the, the New Testament's pretty old. Someone's laughing. Thank you so much, Dave. <laughs> One and two, thank you. One and two Samuel is where we find this story. Now, David is presented to us in so many ways in the Bible. Uh, so many kind of headings you could put him under, uh, so many aspects to his life. And we're going to try and learn from them in the next months. So he was, first of all, a son, but he was also a shepherd and a worshipper. David wrote half of the Psalms. So 150 Psalms, David wrote 75 of them. And if you think about that, David wrote 75 of the most famous poems in all of history. In fact, billions of people have been helped and comforted by the fact that he was a worshipper. Think of Psalm 23, just the, the one that would come to mind straight away. Billions of people over the centuries have learnt from his worshipping heart, and we need to learn from it too. So he was a worshipper. He was, of course, a giant slayer, and we'll come to that in a few weeks' time. He was a great leader, a warrior. He was a leader of men and women. He was a poet, a musician. He was a king, a prophet, a husband, a father, a friend, and he was a cheat and a murderer. 
And so we find in this life so many things for us to learn from. So many highs and devastating lows in this life. His life is a provocation, an encouragement, a source of comfort, and a powerful warning. And even in today's talk, today's sermon, what I want at the end is that there's really two takeaways from today. Two things I'd love for us to understand, to respond to, really. And so we're going to do that when we finish today. There's a real encouragement, and there's a warning. And we might respond to both. We might want to respond to one or the other, or maybe something else that God speaks to you, which, of course, is wonderful too. Two things. I hope you, as we go through, you'll work out what those two things are. Otherwise, I'm not doing my job properly. But we need to begin when we look with David before the beginning. Actually, you see, David was not the first king of Israel. He was the second. And Israel at this time is a group of kind of affiliated tribes. And, and what happens uh, at, this, at this point in Israel's history is that those tribes are kind of uh, sometimes drawn together through being attacked from outside, from outside forces and other nations. And in those moments, at this point in their history, God would raise up someone, a man or a woman, full of the Holy Spirit, and that person would lead Israel for a while. And they were called judges. And you might know some of them. Gideon was a judge, and Samson was a judge. And Samuel was a prophet, and he was also the last judge before the kings get going and the kingdom begins. Uh, you might remember Samuel. Samuel was the one who heard God's voice. He was a young boy. He was uh, kind of the protege of Eli the priest, and he was the one who heard his voice and responded, and he's become both the priest and the judge, the final judge of Israel. So that's where we are in the story. So Israel is looking out at the other nations, and that's where we pick up the story here in 1 Samuel and chapter 8, because their journey from being this loose affiliation of tribes led by judges to being a kingdom hasn't gone well. We want a king over us, says Israel to Samuel the prophet. Then we'll be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us, to go out and fight our battles. When Samuel heard that all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. That's what he did. He went to God and said, this is what the people are saying. And he said, listen to them, said the Lord, and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, go back to your own towns. And here we find the beginning of the story before the beginning of David's story, the heart of the error that Israel is falling into. And the error is not that they were asking for a king, because actually in Israel's history, there was promise of a king. Right, way back in Genesis, God promised Jacob, who was well, the forefather of all these, of this tribe, and God said to him, out of you will come a great nation, and kings will come in your line. They said that in Genesis 35. So it wasn't that the, the problem wasn't they asked for a king, it was the kind of king they wanted. And the kind of king they wanted was a king like all the other nations had. Give us a king like they've got a king. I want a king like that. So what they were doing, what this nation was doing, this, this loose affiliation of tribes owned by God, is they were looking beyond the presence of God and saying, with envy in their hearts, we want to be like them. We want a king like they have a king. You see, Israel was unique and special in all the earth. They were the only nation that had God dwelling with them. That was their unique moment. They weren't the strongest, they weren't the biggest, they weren't the smartest, but they had God with them. 
God was dwelling with them. That was their unique moment. That was the thing that God was going to use to bless all the nations. Way back again in Genesis, God promises Abraham this, this, this promise that God put in their hearts that actually tumbled through the ages even to us. He said this in Genesis 12, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed because of you. That was God's intention, that they would affect the nations around them. But look what's happened here. The exact opposite has happened. They're looking enviously at the kingdoms around them, saying, oh, we want, to, we want it to be like that. It, our lives would be better if we had a king like they have a king. So the blessings that were supposed to throw, flow into this nation and out to the nations around had stopped. And now they were saying, we want it like they've got it. Thank you very much. The essence of the relationship that Israel had with God was through the law. They had to obey these laws and rules, but it was God himself who was the source of the blessing. And that blessing was to flow to others. But they were looking enviously at the nations around, that surrounded them. They were, rather than setting an example, they were desiring the trappings of this secular kingdom. Give us a king to lead us. They wanted the glamorous figurehead of a king. That's what they wanted. Let's have this glamour. Let's have the pomp and ceremony that goes with having a king, all the festivals we can have, and a king before us that we can worship and follow, to go before us, to fight our battles for us. Give us a king. They kept shouting and shouting. And then in 1 Samuel 8, we read this. And the Lord told Samuel, listen to all the people and listen to what all the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other other gods. Um, So they're doing to you. So God is saying to Samuel, the prophet saying, it's not you, it's me they're rejecting. They fundamentally rejected the promise that I made to them to be a blessing and, or to receive a blessing and to be a blessing, and now they're looking for blessings elsewhere. And their temptation to look outside of God's presence, outside of God's kingdom, and say, I'd like my life to be like that, is exactly our problem today. Exactly where we would find the challenge We can look outside of God's kingdom into a world that has no intention of following God and conclude, yes, please, I'd like that. Thank you very much. Life would be better if it was more like that. That's what they said. That's what we can say today. I want what they've got, says envy in my heart. I want my life to be like that person's life. I want to have what that person has. I want to know who that person knows. I want to hang out with the people that person hangs out with. I want to be known like that person is known. Actually, social media is absolutely designed to bring envy to us. Absolutely. That's, that's, That's the fundamental design of the platforms is to make you envious of the lives of others. And God says this is an incredibly damaging thing for you. This, this will damage you. If you give in to this, if you give in to envy in your heart, it's going to destroy you. And we might say, well, this was a long time ago. How can it have anything to do with social media today? Well, let's bring it into the New Testament at least, shall we? Or the most recent Testament. So in, the, in James, the Jesus' own brother says this. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom doesn't come down from heaven, but is earthly and spiritual demonic, says James. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. James is saying envy is a gateway drug. He's saying it's a, it opens a door into other things. If you harbor envy in your heart, if you let it grow in you, it just leads to a dustbin of disaster. All these things that he puts in the dustbin, just selfish ambition and, and, and disorder and every evil practice, it's like a dustbin of rubbish. And he's saying the way you, get, the way you dive in there is through, is through the gateway of envy. And Israel is going to find this out to their peril, and it's a warning to us. The trappings of the king, like other nations for Israel here, were this show of wealth and strength. Things which, while externally impressive, had no eternal value whatsoever. To have a king was a, it didn't serve them at all. They had God's presence. But give us a king, they said. We want the trappings. We want the externals. God warned them again and again. This is what a king will do for you. This will be the fruit of your envious longings. They will rule over you. It will be harsh and cruel. And they said, give us a king. They just, envy had taken over. It was almost like they were unable to think logically, to respond to what God was warning them about. Why? Because envy had taken root. And it did with them and it can with us. You ever felt that way? I, I, know, I know I have. I want that thing. I don't care what it takes to get it. I want my life to be like that. It doesn't matter what it takes to get to that point. God is warning Israel, this is, it'll do something really bad to you. If, you. if you follow this route, it's going to destroy you. It's going to harm you, damage you. But they didn't listen. In 1 Samuel 8, 19, we read this. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us to fight our battles. Then Samuel heard all that the people said. He repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. So God gave them what they wanted, even though it was going to damage them. One of the most sobering verses, I think, in the New Testament is found in Romans in chapter 1, where Paul is describing a life that isn't God-focused and God-centered, a, God, a life that rejects God altogether. And he writes this in Romans 1 and 28. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they did what ought not to be done. And they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. With, uh, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and, and malice. And it says God gave them over. And in uh, Psalm 106, we read something different. It says God gave them what they asked for. And actually, it says in that psalm that it wasted them away. It began to waste them away on the inside. God gave them what they wanted. And so Samuel the prophet anointed Saul as the first king over Israel. And just as the people had demanded, Saul was the man all about externals. They asked for a rock star, and they got a rock star. That's who Saul was. That's what he was like. Here we read in 1 Samuel 9, we find out a bit about him. There was a Benjamite, Benjamite a man of standing whose name was Kish, 
son of Abia, the son of Zeor, the son of Becherath, the son of all these other guys. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. He was a head taller than anyone else. And some versions say a head and shoulders taller than anyone else. He stood out from the crowd. He was, he was the rock star. He was the very thing they had wanted. Give us a king like these other nations. Give us the pomp. Give us the ceremony. And they neglected the thing that God championed and longed for, which was an internal life. And so they got the rock star who had almost nothing about him within. The head and shoulders man is who they got. Saul was obsessed with what others thought about him right from the start. And right at the beginning of, of Saul's story when he's anointed king, at one point he's hiding from the adulation of the crowds and almost in the same verse, a few verses later, you find he's building a monument to himself. It's, it's just, it's a, it's a disaster inside. This is not the person that should be leading God's nation. And yet, that's what they wanted. That's what they received. He was obsessed with it. Before long in the story, he's making foolish oaths that are just ridiculous, and then not keeping them himself. He's breaking his own word. In, later in the story, we find Saul in, in, in a great act of evil, usurping the place of the priest and making sacrifices to God and bringing great disaster upon a nation. And deep inside, all through this, there's a deep and gnawing envy of the success of others within him, himself. They get the very thing that was in their own heart. They get an envious king because it came from an envious heart, an envious desire. Let me just read this from T.S. Eliot. Half the harm that is done in the world is due to people who want to, be, to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but harm doesn't interest them, or they don't see it, or they justify it because they're absorbed with the endless struggle to think well of themselves. That describes many people we might know but it also describes Saul himself. He was obsessed with what others thought of him. And of course, as the story goes on, ultimately God rejects Saul as king, and more disasters follow. You have to read it yourself. There in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Let's now pick up the story of David. And in 1 Samuel 16, we read this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. Now that's a strange phrase, isn't it? But actually it would be like a ram's horn full of oil, and that oil would be the anointing oil. So that's how they made kings. So the prophet of God would go, would pour oil over the head of the chosen person, and that person would be, that's what anointing was. It was literally pouring oil over them, all on their head. Terrible mess, I guess. There you go. So, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Ah, that's a place we've heard of. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears, he'll have me killed. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint the one I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said and he arrived in Bethlehem the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Jesse saw, uh, Samuel saw Eliab 
and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before me. That was the oldest son of Jesse. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider him or his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Now here are the key verses for understanding this story. The Lord said Samuel, God said to Samuel, the Lord doesn't look at things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse made Shammah pass by but, but before Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. So he asked Jesse, are these all your sons? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending sheep in the field. Samuel said, send for him and we won't sit down till he arrives. Let's hope he wasn't very far away. So he sent for him and they had him brought. He was glowing in health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint this one for me. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel went to Ramah. And so Samuel anoints David as king. But the process is fascinating. Can you imagine... The kind of, the judge, the priest, the leader of the nation comes to town and says, we're, we're anointing kings today. Get your sons. And Jesse gets seven of his eight sons and leaves David in the field. It's just, you know, I don't know if you're a parent, if you've got more than one, one child, do you ever get the names wrong? Do you ever kind of cycle through the names and he gets to the, I'll just do that as a matter of course now Josh Sam yeah got it and, and, and they often tell me you forget my name well I don't forget the name it's just not right there but this is I mean, I mean that to be fair that might take therapy for my kids at some point but this is so much worse it's, they've left him out they, he's left in a field this is, this is the judge the priest of the nation bring your sons oh, we'll leave him in the field. And it's like, have you got any other sons? Oh, yeah, we have. We've got another one. <laughs> it's probably happened to you, hasn't it? Just feel like, oh, just, just everyone forgets me. I get left in the field. Everyone else gets to have fun. Why doesn't anyone see what I think's in me? Why doesn't people see it? Now, that can be pride, but sometimes it's simply that life's like that. I know, it's happened to me many, many, many times. Many times. And you're just left out. And you're like, oh my goodness. Well, this story is hope if you identify at all with that. Because God doesn't choose like people choose. God looks at the heart. He's looking way beyond the externals. Don't be fooled. Don't be flattered or fooled by the choice of men and women. But look in wonder at God's choosing. Let that be the driving force, the deciding factor. Let that be the stabilization inside of you. God chooses you. He chooses you. He loves you. He cares for you. So out of these eight sons, David, the youngest, left in the field. Finally they get him. God says, that's the one. That's the one. And the rest, as they say, is history. In an incredible kind of twist of history, um, there's this beautiful statue called David, which you've probably seen. I think we're going to see it, hopefully. Are we going to see it? We had to pick the angle. 
quite carefully. <laughs> you may know the statue. It's made of marble. It's really beautiful. It took a long time to find that picture. But let me read you the story of this statue. This comes from uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yes, it does still exist. <laughs> it is online, but you know, it still exists. At the start of the 16th century, the committee of officials in charge of the decoration and maintenance of Florence Cathedral had a tricky, unfinished project on their hands. A document from 1501 refers to a massive, barely begun statue, a certain man of marble named David, badly blocked out and laid on his back in a courtyard. The stone was left over from a long-running uh, decorative project. In 1408, the committee had decided to decorate the roof line around the dome of the cathedral with massive statues of biblical prophets and mythological figures. The first two had already been put in place in the early 15th century. They were the statue of Joshua, uh, sculpted in terracotta by Donatello. That's not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, that's the, the actual Donatello, okay? They'd painted it white so it would look like marble. Then the statue of Hercules was sculpted by one of Donatello's students, and they were in place. But a statue of David, the hero who had slayed the giant Goliath, had been ordered in 1464. The commission went to Augustino, and a huge slab of marble was extracted from the quarries of Tuscany in Italy for the project. For unknown reasons, Augustino abandoned the project after doing only a little work, mostly roughly around the legs, the bits you can't see there. Another sculpture, Rossellino, was hired to take over the project in 1476, but he backed out almost immediately, citing the poor quality of the marble. Modern scientific analysis of the marble have confirmed that it is indeed of mediocre quality. And left without a sculpture, but too expensive to throw away, the massive slab laid out in a field for a quarter of a century. In the summer of 1501, a new effort was made to find a sculptor who could complete the statue. The 26-year-old sculptor Michelangelo was chosen and given two years to complete it. Early on the morning of the 13th of September, 1501, the young artist got hold of the slab and extracted the figure of David in a miraculous process that the artist was later to describe as bringing back life from one who was dead. It's an astonishing story that reflects so much of David's story himself. There you have this, this huge slab of marble that was so flawed that these skilled artists said nothing can be made of this and rejected it again and again, eventually leaving it out for 25 years in a field. And finally, the master artist, Michelangelo gets his hands on it and extracts this, maybe the most beautiful of all statues ever to be created. Millions and millions have marveled at it. In fact, some would say the shape and the form is actually because of the flaws in the marble. The way it's built, the way it's designed, the way he looks, the whole thing is because it's a flawed piece of marble. That's why it's the way it is. And so God chooses us flawed and often dismissed by others, sometimes literally left to rot, left, off, left out. God says, no, I'm choosing. And the many artists, and maybe yourself, think, well, what, what could be made of me? 
And God says, the great master artist, I can do something that is to do with my wonder, to do with my skill, to do with bringing glory to me. And he can do it in you. And that's the story of how David came to be chosen. It's a story of God's gracious choosing. It's a story that we should take great comfort from. Because God doesn't choose like others choose. He chooses from a gracious, loving heart. He's actually looking for a humble heart. Jesus said, didn't he, it's it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And why did he say that? It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven because often people's wealth makes us hard-hearted. It says, no, I can do it on my own. I can manage. It says, I don't need others' help. I can do it on my own. And actually to receive God's blessing and God's gracious gospel truth into us requires humility. Sometimes God needs to give you that. If God's speaking to you this morning, you need to humble yourself and respond to him. It's not something you're going to hear a lot these days. but That's a requirement of coming to Jesus. A humble heart. There's the encouragement. Hope that you have heard that. And of course, it comes on the back of a warning. And that warning is of allowing envy to shape you. And that's what the nation had done right up to that point. They'd just been shaped by a desire for things that weren't God's best for them, things beyond the kingdom of God. Said, I want those things, my life will be better. And as we consider that incredible blessing and encouragement now, I'd like you to consider this warning. I'm going to read something from you from The Guardian at the end of last year. Moyasana, one of their columnists, wrote this under the title, The Age of Envy. We live, she says, in the age of envy, career envy, kitchen envy, children envy, food envy, upper arm envy, holiday envy. You name it, there's an envy for it. Human beings have always felt what Aristotle defined in the 4th century BC as pain at the sight of the good fortune of others, stirred by those who have what we ought to have. Though it will be another thousand years before it will make Pope Gregory's list of the seven deadly sins. Now here's the thing. She says this, we carry in our pockets the envy amplification devices. We sleep with them next to our pillows, and it tempts us 24 hours a day. The moment we wake up, even in the middle of the night, Andrew, that's not me, she says, Andrew has observed uh, among her patients that knowing they're looking at an edited version of reality, uh, the awareness that hashtag no filter is a deceitful hashtag, as no defense against the emotional forces of envy, What I've noticed is that most of us can intellectualize what we see on the screens. We know that these images and narratives that are presented to us aren't real. We can talk and rationalize about it, but on, on on an emotional level, it is still pushing our buttons. Israel looked outside and said, that's what I want. I want that. I want that life. I want those things. They were vacuous and empty. God warned them about it, and it ultimately caused incredible hardship and pain. We can do just the same, and we don't have to look far, sometimes just into the palm of your hand. Don't let envy shape you. Don't be shaped by envy. 
Reject it. You might need to repent of it. Run from it. There are chapters after chapter after chapter of 1 Samuel, and the lesson that the nation is learning is don't be shaped by envy. It's sobering, brothers and sisters. Don't be shaped by envy. We have so much better on offer. Don't fill your heart with the desire to have what other people have that God is not giving to you. Don't do it. It will damage you like it damaged the nation. You'll make bad choices like they did. Fill your heart with what? With one who can deliver. The one who does fulfill his promises with our great Lord and Savior. Fill your horizons with him. Let the palm of your hand be full of the words of Jesus, not full of the lives of others. Let's stand. What we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. Now, communion is a meal for believers. It's a meal for people who say, yep, Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior. It's not for believers who are behaving themselves, by the way. It's for believers. And so if you, uh, the Bible also says, if you've got anything against anyone,